Let us pray. So, Father, give us your heart that we would sing for the world and that we may bring Christ to the world and the world to Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. And I'm so grateful that you're here on this wet day. That's kind of a big nothing in terms of the weather forecast. Um, But we live in the mid-Atlantic, and even big nothings are a big deal. So uh, this isn't in my notes, but I've got one of my former students when I was a hospital chaplain who's a Catholic priest in Erie, Pennsylvania. A couple years ago, Erie got um, like two feet of snow on Christmas Day. And by Christmas morning, they had 14 inches. So um, I call him Jamie, Father James. Um, I texted him Christmas afternoon and said, so how was, how was Mass this morning? He said, you, he texted me back, you people down there don't understand us people in the area. We had over 400 people at Christmas morning Mass this morning. <laughs> so we had a wonderful day here yesterday at All Saints Church with our monthly food giveaway. Um, and thanks to all of you who served yesterday who served in the week leading up, preparing things, and who donated food items. We served 176 families yesterday. And so it was one of our bigger days. So thanks be to God. It was a wonderful time. And David Fawcett, who was part of the prayer team, sent me a text late yesterday and shared just with how, how some of the people were touched by the Lord during prayer as well. And I'm looking forward to maybe having some opportunities to hear from some of our prayer team members in the days going forward about those, those good things and some specific examples of what God is doing. But thank you all, because this is a way we're blessing and touching our community. And um, we had a lady in first service today, first time at the church, because she came to the food giveaway yesterday, brought her daughter. Her daughter was in children's church. So thanks be to God. I also want to bring to your attention now, rather than doing the announcements, because I've got your attention more now than doing the announcements, um, two weeks from today is February 27th, and that is Transfiguration Sunday, and the Reverend Justin Clemente will be with us. He is a church planter in our diocese up in Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, vicar of New Creation Anglican Church in Hagerstown, and he and I have built a friendship and We're exploring different ways that we can partner. And about two months ago, we talked about the possibility of doing a pulpit exchange. So that day, Father Justin will be here and I will be up in Hagerstown. And again, doing this to build partnerships and also to highlight church planting within our diocese. I don't know whether Justin's wife and family will be here. His wife at that point will be about two weeks away from giving birth to their sixth child. Must be something about church planters because we also... um, We have another church planter in the diocese who's on the very early stages of planting, who's 42 years old and has nine kids. So, um, so yeah, something with church planting and, and, um, that's another way to grow a church plant. (laughs) So very well, but, but continuing today in our study of Ephesians on a more serious note. And again, I want to give credit to Lynn Kohick and her commentary, wonderful commentary on Ephesians. I'm using several other commentaries as well, but I've, again, today, not exclusively, but leaned heavily on her material because it's so well done. As I started to prepare my sermon for this week, this past Tuesday, Tuesday is typically my sermon prep day, 
I had intended to cover verses 1 through 21 of Ephesians 5 in one sermon. And as I got into my in-depth study of the text, I realized this just wasn't possible to do and also do justice to God's word here. Um, So we'll cover verses 7 through 21 next week. We're focusing on verses 1 through 6 today. If you remember back in Ephesians 1 that St. Paul begins by focusing and expounding upon the love of God the Father. And we'll see this, especially if you look at verses 3 through 7 of Ephesians 1, that through redemption in Christ, God has indeed adopted us as his beloved children. And continuing this vein, at the end of Ephesians 4 that we looked at last week, St. Paul points to our call to be imitators of God. Again, we talked about this last week as we read these words in Ephesians chapter 4. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As we noted last Sunday, learning Christ, did you hear that? Learning Christ is very different than learning about Christ. It is not simply the gathering of facts and information. Rather, learning Christ is indicative of a relationship with Jesus. Learning Christ is the result of his transforming power at work in our lives. And this connects us with our starting point today. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 with me. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In recent weeks, especially back on January 23rd, which was Sanctity of Life Sunday, I spoke of the truth, the biblical truth, that all human beings are created in the image of God. I want to expound on this somewhat, and I'm borrowing here. I'm going to go deep for just a moment, so hang with me. I'm borrowing here from Anglican priest and the founder of Methodism, but he was always a priest in the Church of England his entire life, John Wesley. And Wesley, in his writings, identifies, I think this is very helpful, three aspects of how human beings are created in God's image. In other words, three dimensions of this. First, there is the natural image. This is a picture of God's own immortality. We are eternal beings as human beings. And consequently, since we are spiritual beings, we are in God's image endued with understanding, a will, and various affections. So that's the natural image. Second, Wesley identifies what he calls the political image. Now that is not in terms of politics like we understand it or what comes to our mind today immediately. But the political image of God speaks of the human capacity to govern creation. And clearly God has endowed human beings as created in his image with this capacity and this responsibility. We see this back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, where God charges human beings to govern and rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the animals of the land. God gave human beings dominion over earthly creation. And then third, 
Wesley talks about the moral image, that image which is created in righteousness and true holiness, as we would saw in Ephesians 4.24 last week, pure from sin, full of love as the sole principle of all tempers, thoughts, words, and actions, living in uninterrupted fellowship with God. Now, you may very well be asking, why in the world is he telling me all of this? TMI. But here's the deal. The natural and political image, to use Wesley's image phrases, uh, the natural and political image of God in us was marred and tainted through the fall when sin entered into the world. However, through the entry of sin into the world, the moral image of God, and with it the capacity to love as God's lo- God loves, is lost. Fellowship with God was broken. And instead of fellowship, human beings at that moment began to live in enmity or rebellion toward and against God. And lost was this moral image that reflected God's holy character. Now, some of you may know, if you know anything about historic ways of refining fine and precious metals like silver and gold. I mean, processes are different now, but when it was done by a silversmith or a goldsmith, they would have um, gold or silver in, a, in a, a cauldron or a kettle, and they would heat it up, and all the junk would come to the top. The dross would come to the top. And if you've ever seen that, I mean, there's like this layer of just filth and crud that's there, and you can't see the gold or silver at all, because the junk, the dross, obscures it and rises to the surface. So hold that imagery for a minute. I'm going to come back to it. Because a huge part of what God has wonderfully done for us through faith in Christ is to restore and make whole this image of God in us. And this is only possible through Christ. Do not lose that fact. This is only possible through Christ, who loved us, And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, verse 2 of Ephesians 5. And because of this transformation which Christ brings to pass in the Christian's life, and only because of this, believers are empowered to walk in restored living fellowship with God, to love God with our whole heart, And to both love God and then to love others with God's love. So through Christ and through his transforming work, the believer finds himself or herself in a dramatically new place and a dramatically new condition. So let's go back to the image of a silver or goldsmith. So they turn up the heat more and more and all this dross, this crud rises to the surface. And then the the gold or silversmith takes a ladle and and skims all of that off. And then they turn up the heat even more. And more of that stuff comes to the surface and they skim more of it off. And they keep doing this process over and over and over and over until no more dross comes up. And the way in the colonial period in earlier days, the gold or silversmith knew that that metal was pure is that when he looked into the cauldron, He saw his image perfectly reflected back to him with no dross and no crud. That's what God does in us. 
He turns up in a gracious way the heat and purifies us as we seek his face and walk with him more and more and more until that image, especially that moral image of God is once again reflected and demonstrated not only back to him, but then as it's reflected back to him, to the world around us as well. And now we can indeed be imitators of Christ. We can follow and walk according to God's example as God's beloved children. This is what putting on the new self that we talked about last week, created in true righteousness, is all about. Christ loving and giving of himself, as depicted in verse 2 of Ephesians 5, is foundational to God's call to holy living by believers. So in verses 4 through 6, as we move on, St. Paul pulls no punches here. I mean, these are sobering, direct, as clear as you can get verses. And what he says here is that the habitual practice of the sins he lists here, and this is not exclusive, there are other sins that could fall into this list that he writes about in other places as well. But the habitual practice of these sins exclude one from the inheritance which is ours in Christ. And we're not talking here about some kind of works righteousness, about earning our salvation or earning points with God as if we work and earn it. No, Christ has accomplished this for us. And it's not as if somehow there's some great eternal scale. And if the scale tips because we've done more good works than bad works, we're okay with God and we'll be with God for eternity and we experience redemption. Or if the scale tips the other way, we're not okay and we spend eternity separated from God. No, that's not the way this works. Rather, the actions that St. Paul talks about here, actions point to the heart. Now, scholars seem to believe, and most indications are, that the sinful behaviors which Paul addresses here were not endemic among the, the Ephesian believers, among the Ephesian church. Rather, like we also saw last week, and we talked about a number of times It was in the world all around them. These things were all around them, right where they lived, right where they worked. The same is true for you and me, right where we live, right where we work. These kinds of things are always around us. And for the Ephesians and for us, the pull of the world and the pull of sin is strong. And these things were there pressing and tempting the Ephesians to revert and to go back and return to who they once were apart from Christ. To a way of living and being which is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. St. Paul here gives what I will call two triads, two groupings of three specific sins in verses 3 through 4. The first grouping is this, the first triad. Sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. The second in verse 4 are filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. I'm not going to go into each one of these individually, but I want to point out some very important facts about these. So the first three behaviors, the first triad, in verse 3, they are all about lusts. Did you hear that? They're all about lusts. Not just, to be clear, not just sexual lusts, although they are clearly included here, but also covetousness, greed, lusting for 
wealth, for stuff, for power. And at the root, this is so important, at the root of each of these sins is an ungodly desire for that which isn't ours to have. Did you hear that? The bottom line is that these sins involve a desire or a pursuit of those things which aren't ours to have. Another person's body, another person's money, power in an inappropriate way over someone else. And the root of all this, scripture here says, is idolatry. Well, what's that? Idolatry is setting something or someone else up in the place that is only rightfully God's in our lives, most simply. It is seeking fulfillment, which is only found in God through other behaviors and things and people. As one commentary says, the man or the person who no longer has his goal and fulfillment in God seeks fulfillment in himself, his possessions and acquisitiveness. Ultimately, he makes himself subject to an idol that strives to subject everything to itself. Did you hear that? We are, as God's people, are called to be subject to God. We are called to be under the rule and the authority and the kingship of God. Idols, whether it be another person or power or greed or sexual promiscuity, whatever it is, strives to make us subject to that thing in every way. Now, we in the church sometimes do an okay or good job with talking about some of these things, but we also very often fall into the trap of having a pecking order where certain sins or certain behaviors and certain things in this realm of lusts are higher on our list or more grave than others. When God says they're all equally wicked, they're all equally sinful, they all lead to idolatry. They all lead to impaired relationship or separation from me. In putting on the new self, which we do by God's power, God calls us to pursue him and that which is of him and to flee those other things. We are to pursue that which is virtuous, that which is of God and of his character and his kingdom. And we are to flee from that which is vice, that which is contrary to God and contrary to God's character. I like what Lynn Kohick says about this in our modern age. In our post-Freudian, talking about the psychologist Freud, in our post-Freudian era, it holds that almost all sexual expression is described as good, and any curtailing of sexual desire leads to repressive mental ailments. We confuse love with sexual satisfaction. We also live with per pervasive consumerism, enabled by crony capitalism, that dulls our senses to the damaging power of excessive consumption. Paul counters that the well-lived life is that which offers thanksgiving to God and extends open-handed generosity to others. Paul sees no reason to apologize for a holy life, a life that decries sin and embraces goodness. 
Perhaps we have an allergy to the term holiness because today is, it is understood as holier than thou. A ho- is a, it is understood as a holier than thou attitude and judgmental hypocrisy. The church is partly to blame for this perception because it has defined holiness at times as only avoiding gross sexual sins or as following a list of don'ts. Christian communities can neglect the importance of Christ-like generosity and God-like forgiveness, leading to thanksgiving of God. Paul stresses the importance of becoming like Christ, which involves both the pursuit of virtue and the avoidance of vice. To this end, Paul spotlights the believer's redemption and new life in Christ. The second three behaviors revolve around what is spoken. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that there is incredible power in words. To build up, to tear down, to curse, to bless, to harm, or to heal. James 1.26 reminds us, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then continue in James chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set afire by hell. I like this wording here of the way a ship is guided by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs, which raises the issue, who is the pilot directing our tongue and the thoughts that come out of our mouths? The kind of speech and behaviors we talked about just a minute ago, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, hear this, they all subjectively chip away at God's image in a person. Did you hear that? That that kind of speech chips away at the image of God in a person, whether that be oneself or someone else. Because words that demean and degrade a person diminish subjectively the image of God that that person bears. And God condemns this kind of abuse in others and ourselves because it treats people as objects rather than as people created in his image, reflecting the dignity of God who made them. As Kohik notes in our world, we are not tempted by actual temples of idolatry, such as the temple of Artemis in Ephesus or the Roman emperor cult of worship. And yet the temptations, I would say, of all kinds of lust, greed, coarse speech, crude joking, they're just as real. And all of these seek to set up idols in our lives 
in the place that is rightfully only God's. So we do have idols in our world, even if they're not temples built to Artemis. Our lusts and our objects of desire are things like silver and gold and power and pixelated images on our computer screens. And they do just the exact same things. God does indeed call us to be holy like he is holy. But he doesn't call us to be holier than thou and arrogant. We must be seen as people set apart for God, holy people by the world around us. We must be that. Holy and set apart for God and his purposes and reflecting his image. And that includes the fleeing of vice. It also means reflecting the, in wholeness and totality who God is. Yes, holy. Holy means set apart for God and his purposes. Reflecting his image, but knowing that we do that by his grace and his power and the transformation that he has brought about in our lives through Jesus Christ. And while Paul calls God's people to be set apart and yet in the world, and while he draws a sharp contrast between the pagan world and the immorality all around the Ephesians, he draws a contrast between that and the people of God. Let's not forget God's heart. We must not forget God's heart. Because these pagans, God wills to be drawn into the communion of saints. God's heart for you and me, for this church, for his people is to walk in love and in the purity and holiness of Christ before the world so that the world around us would be drawn in and become part of the beloved family, become part of the beloved children of God. Fully bearing his restored image that Christ works in them, in love, grace, mercy, and truth. And in all of this, God is calling you and me to ever-increasing thankfulness. To quote Lynn Kohick again, when believers thank God, they recognize their dependence on him and not on idols. When they praise the Lord, they remember his holiness and their own call to reflect that holiness. A heart of thankfulness, a heart of gratitude to the Lord that recognizes what he has done for us through Christ will remind us that we are dependent upon him for everything we're talking about here today. And as we're dependent on him, those idols in our lives are cast aside more and more and more. And when we express praise and thanksgiving to God, it brings to mind his holiness because we enter into his presence. And we reflect that holiness in a true and right way in ever greater measure. God's kingdom is indeed a place for right living, for learning Christ, as we talked about last week, and for putting on the new self in true righteousness and holiness as God works in our lives. God's kingdom is also a place and needs to be a space for forgiveness, where people experience God's healing, where people experience God's forgiveness, and where people experience 
new or restored right relationship in Jesus. And again, to quote Kohik one more time, God invites us to see sin as he does, as those thoughts and practices that prevent our flourishing and tarnishing the imago Dei, the image of God in us and in others. Do you understand that's what sin really does in the end? It prevents our flourishing. It prevents our living holy for God. And it tarnishes the image of God that he has divinely placed in us. We need to remember that. That when God says no to something, when God in his word commands us yes or no to this thing or that thing, it's not because God is some prude up in heaven. It's not. But it's because he loves us more than we can understand. He created us in his image, and he knows what is in our best interest, both in the immediate and for all time and eternity. And he loves us beyond our comprehension of what love even is. He created us, and he loved us. Think of the commands of God in this way. It's like a great river. Think of the Mississippi River with with banks. And when the river is within those banks... Everything is wonderful and good. And those, the flow of that river is productive and healthy for commerce and for agriculture and for so many other things. But when that river floods up and spills out of the bank, that which is intended for good and to be whole and pure becomes something destructive. It becomes something that devastates. It becomes something that destroys lives and even communities. That's how it is with the things we're talking about. When they're kept within the bounds that God has given us, they are good and beautiful and right and holy in accordance with his will. But when they spill out over those banks, we have a mess on our hands. It's about living and walking out God's character. This is about walking in God's holiness. Not self-righteousness, but God's holiness. Putting on by God's power, the new self in us. And it's about the ongoing in our lives, in the life of this church, it's about the ongoing casting out of any idols, any forms of idolatry, anything, anyone, any thought processes that set themselves up in a place in our lives for us as individuals and for this church. They set themselves up in places that are God's and God's alone. Does that make sense? And when something or someone else is put in that place that is rightfully God's and God's alone, it leads to a mess. It leads to harm. It leads to destruction. They talked about during my rector's address at the business meeting, we, God is calling us to be wholly set apart for him. We are to be all together and singularly for the Lord. We are to serve the Lord only. And no matter where we are in our growth, no matter where we are as a church, God is calling us to do that in ever greater measure as he continues to, in a loving, gracious way, turn up that refiner's fire.
and skim off that dross so that more and more and more, bit by bit, day by day, we more perfectly reflect his image. We reflect who he has created us as individuals, who he has created his church to be. And as we do that, in true righteousness and holiness and grace, the world will be drawn to us. The world will be drawn to Jesus through us. And we will see God do great and incredible things. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have created us and every human being in your image. And we thank you, God, for redemption, new life, wholeness through Jesus Christ. And that your salvation is offered to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, even now we pray that you would search our hearts, that you would search us as a church. Lord, that you would graciously turn up your refining heat so that every idol, every place that's not wholly yours, everything that would seek to rise up and and occupy that place which is yours and yours alone in our lives and in the life of this church, that those things would be cast down and trampled underfoot and gone forever so that we would reflect your image and that Jesus and not us would be seen so that a world may know that Christ is their Savior. He is their life. And we ask this in his great name. Amen.